Welcome to today's Community Cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. So over the last few weeks, we have been talking about how God is constantly using normal people, everyday people, plain people, boring people like you and I to do pretty extraordinary and incredible things. Well, this is our final week in the series, and I really want us to kind of drill down on one of the stories that I think is super overlooked in Scripture about how God chooses people like us to do extraordinary things. So oftentimes we're not born with privilege or power or wealth. Sometimes when we recognize that, we feel like there's really nothing we can contribute to society. Sometimes we feel like we just don't have enough to make a big difference in the world, right? I'm going to read some facts to you about a person who made an incredible difference in the world. And this person wasn't rich. She didn't have some great education. She didn't come from a family of power or wealth or influence. This woman made a huge difference in the world by just taking one small step. Let's see if you might be able to figure out who this person is as I read down this list of accomplishments, okay? In 1976, the city of Detroit renamed a street after her. I'm sure that's pretty vague. 1979, the NAACP awarded her the Spingern Medal, which is the NAACP's highest honor. In 1980, she received the Martin Luther King Jr. Award. In 1983, she was inducted into Michigan's Women Hall of Fame for her achievements in civil rights. Okay, I see looks of confusion. Good. 1984, she received a Candace Award from the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. Any thoughts? In 1990, this woman was invited to be part of the group welcoming Nelson Mandela after he was released from his prison in South Africa. A part of Interstate 475 outside of Toledo, Ohio, was named after her. In 1992, she received the, the Peace Abbey Courage of Conscience Award along with Dr. Benjamin Spock and others at the Kennedy Library and Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. In 1993, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. In 1994, received an honorary doctorate from Florida State University in Tallahassee. Look, I'm trying to, there's a lot in here, and I'm sure this could represent a lot of people. In 1994, she received an honorary doctorate from Soka University in Tokyo, Japan. In 1995, she received the Academy of Achievements Golden Plate Award in Williamsburg, Virginia. In 96, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor given by the U.S. Executive Branch. In 98, she was the first person to receive the International Freedom Conductor Award given by the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. In 1999, she received the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest award given by the U.S. Legislative Branch. This medal bears the legend, Mother of Modern Day Civil Rights Movement. Nothing? You getting close? Nope. Any guesses? You want to throw out anything? Oprah? Oprah? That's, that's a good guess. But not, it's not Oprah. Uh, Time named her one of the 20 most influential and iconic figures of the 20th century. President Clinton, here you go, here's your biggest clue yet. President Clinton honored her in his State of the Union address saying, she's sitting down with the First Lady tonight. She may or may not get up as she so chooses. Any thoughts? <laughs> she was awarded two dozen honorary doctorates from universities worldwide. She was made an, a memory, a member, an honorary member of Alpha, 
Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, and the list just keeps going on and on and on. In 2015, the papers and documents that were written by her and belonged to her were cataloged in the Library of Congress. That's how important she was. Uh, in December 13th, a new railway station to open in, in Paris, France, bearing her name. And there are so many more things that we can add to this list. And you probably you aren't thinking about it because you're not comparing it to the one story that we really know about this person. It's Rosa Parks. Okay, so you guys are like, yeah, okay, they knew it. All right. <laughs> so, so she was an African-American woman who in the 1950s refused to give up her seat on a bus and in doing so started the modern civil rights movement. So we, we've all heard the story about how, uh, you know, that she was tired from a full day's work. She boarded the Montgomery bus on December 1st, 1955 and forever became one of the inspirational people who changed the world. Later on, remembering that day, Rosa Parks would later correct the story of her refusal to get up and move. And this is a quote from her. It says, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that's not true. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. When she refused to obey the driver's orders to give up her seat and move to the back of the bus so that a white man could come and take her spot, she was arrested for civil disobedience. Her act of defiance sparked a young black pastor. You might have heard his name before, uh, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to declare a boycott on the Montgomery bus system. And it was from this moment in history, from Rosa Parks taking a stand by sitting, that sparked Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to call for the bus boycott. And from this moment on, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. became a national figure for civil rights in our country. After lawsuits and changes in the transportation system, the civil disobedience that broke out around the country following this young woman's refusal to get up and to leave her seat based on her skin color, it changed American history forever. So again, she was not somebody of consequence. She was just a, a woman without means. She was also born into a people group that was constantly harassed and discriminated against. But she was also a woman who was tired of being treated differently because of the amount of melanin in her skin. There wasn't really anything special about her. She didn't come from royalty. She didn't have political connections. She was just a woman coming home from work who refused to follow an unjust law. Her personal rebellion sparked a national movement and in doing so changed many of the laws that you and I know today. She changed laws of segregation that continued to persecute people of color even after slavery was abolished in 1865. So what I love about her story is that she has been given such honor and prestige and her name is renowned. Like we know who she is. We don't know all of her awards, but we know who she is. We can recognize her name. And she was a small woman who many said was very introverted. But she accomplished big things. She was in the right place at the right time to take a stand for justice. Because of her, rules were changed and people's lives got better. Her story is familiar to us. It's a story of courage in the face of danger. It's a story of self-sacrifice. And as I was preparing for my sermon this week, I couldn't help but think about the correlation that I see in her story as a woman who was quiet and didn't have a whole lot of means 
and another story that I want us to look at today. The story I want to look at today is a story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I think a lot of times we overlook Mary because, I mean, she comes out once a year at Christmas and then we put Mary away. The only time we ever really hear about her is that she was important in birthing her son. And I think there's a lot more to her story than that. So in order for us to like get into the story of Mary, we have to first look at the genealogy of Jesus. And we have to see how we get to Mary. So get ready because I'm going to read to you some of the most interesting parts of all of Scripture right now with the genealogy of Jesus. So be prepared uh, if you guys look around because if you fall asleep, just pinch your, your next door neighbor if you would. We're going to start in the book of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And there's a lot of really hard to pronounce Hebrew names, so bear with me. All right, here we go. In Matthew 1, 1 through 17, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. And it starts out with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and its brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salon, or Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Be paying attention to names that you recognize in this list. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. <gasps> Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So interesting, right? After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azer. Azer, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and then 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what I find really interesting about what we just read is that we have this beautiful long line of patriarchal members of Scripture, right? Like these are stories that are, these names are, are names that we find in stories that, that Scripture just talks about, you know, kind of repeatedly throughout the time uh, of the Old Testament. And then we get to the very end. And who do they choose to trace the line through? It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's Joseph, who, let's be honest, has a pretty small role in all of this Christmas story, in the story of the birth and the raising of Jesus, we don't hear much about Joseph. People all around the world now recognize Mary, the mother of Jesus, as an important part of our faith. But in, in honesty, back in ancient times, the church really didn't know what to do with Mary because women were not talked about. Women were not super important 
But this woman, I mean, she should at least be the exception, right? Like she was, she was the mother of Jesus. She, she birthed the savior of the world. But here in this, you know, pericope, this, this section of verses uh, about the, the genealogy of Jesus, she's mentioned at the very end and as a wife to a husband whose genealogy traces back through David and to Abraham. Strange. She was so unimportant that they traced the line of Jesus through Joseph, who had no role in the birth of Jesus. Again, the only time we really get to hear about Mary is when we are in the Christmas season, when we're lighting candles and talking about, uh, you know, Mary being visited by the angel. And so I want to recap that story. I know it's summer. I know it's 104 degrees today. Uh, but I think it's important for us to look back through the story of Mary to find out how it relates to us right now. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we get to hear Mary's encounter. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, you know, Elizabeth is, Scripture says, a close relative of Mary, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town called Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and he wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. What an incredible experience, right? So the, the story sets the stage perfectly from the very beginning, right? So God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. This kind of sets the whole stage. Like, the, Nazareth is so unimportant, people probably had no idea where it was if you were reading this from outside of that kind of small area, that he has to, the writer of the book of Luke has to tell everybody where Nazareth is. It's in, it's in Galilee. It's, it's kind of around that area, right? And then it says that the angel went to Nazareth in Galilee to a young woman, a virgin, named Mary. So now we have a woman in a no-name town in a region that has to be explained to a virgin, a young woman of no consequence. It doesn't say that she was daughter of the king or queen of uh, Jerusalem or anything. It's just a virgin named Mary. The Greek word here is parthenos meaning virgin. It, it doesn't just mean virgin, it means a maiden. So it, the implication here is that she's very young, probably between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. Now, I don't know if you remember your teenage years, but I remember mine. So my teenage years were filled with a lot of like 
hormones and fights and foul language. And here's this young, young, young girl who is visited by an angel and said, hey, you're going to have this huge responsibility in just a little bit. Get ready. How do you think you would have dealt with that? In this moment, God chooses Mary to bring into the world its Savior. God chooses to use this young, plain, poor, unknown woman from an unknown town among an unknown people with no power, no wealth, no means to bring about into the world its Messiah. And I really don't think that we realize how important this is. What do you think that your response would be, ladies, in the room? Uh, if an angel showed up to you at home one day and just says, Hey, young lady, God wants to use you for something incredible, but you'll have to live as an unwed mother for a little while, nine months roughly, in a culture that would potentially try to murder you for an honor killing for defiling your father's name. You good with that? Or what about us dudes in the room and those of you who are joining us online? What if an angel showed up to you and said, Hey, guy. I know you love your girlfriend and all, but God has a plan for her that you're not going to play much of a role in. And it will look to a bunch of people as if she's been unfaithful to you and wound up pregnant. You'll be gossiped about and looked down on as the man who married a whore. You okay with that, bro? I don't have any idea what my response would be if something like that happened in my life. But the incredible thing is that Scripture records Mary's response, right? Probably a 12 to 14 year old woman in a no-name town with no means. And let's see what, what she says, right? In Luke chapter 1, 46 through 56, it, this title is called Mary's Song. Like she's so excited about what she's going to do that she actually sings about it, right? In verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And verse 56 says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. A young girl is told she's going to live in a society that believed in honor killings. Even to this day, we still see that honor killings are a thing in the Middle East, that if you have uh, done something that has dishonored your father's name, your father could have you killed. She was excited because she knew she was going to give birth to the Son of God. So this example of Mary is the pinnacle of faith and trust in God. When everything about this encounter should evoke fear in her, right? To carry and bear the Son of God means nine months of fear, nine months of pain and uncomfortableness and, you know, heat in the Middle East. And uh, there's this, this understanding that she has for sure been unfaithful to her father and unfaithful to her betrothed husband, Joseph. She dishonored her family. That's how people would see it. 
She faced an unknown future with the song of praise to God. She was God's chosen vessel through whom all generations of the earth would be blessed. And we only talk about her at Christmas as if her only job was to just bear the son of God and like, boop, she's out of the story. One of the things I, I think that oftentimes we forget is that she was there with Jesus a lot of the time through his ministry. His first miracle, where was he? At a wedding in Cana. She was there. They ran out of wine. She goes and finds her son. Hey, Jesus, do something about this wine situation. Woman, that's not my time. Just do as I say. I'm your mother, right? Like, I imagine that she played the mother card. And in that moment, Jesus revealed himself for who he was. And the wine that Jesus turned from water into wine was the best that the wine taster had that evening. Mary was there in that moment. Mary helped train up this young boy. It's clear from Scripture. Remember when Mary and Joseph, uh, they, they walked out of Jerusalem uh, after going back to Jerusalem for uh, a feast and a festival, and Jesus wasn't with them. He was found back at his father's house in the temple reading Scripture to the, 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 uh, the rabbis and the, and the people who had come into town. So it was clear that she was important in his religious upbringing. They brought him to the temple. I mean, she left him there. That's kind of a faux pas. But, but she was integral in the story of Jesus, raised him to respect his faith, raised him as a Hebrew young man. We also get to see that she was there on the day that her son was crucified. At the cross, she saw her son die for the sake of the world. From the beginning of the scripture, God is continually revealing himself. And repeatedly, God shows us that he is for the people that the world is often against. God chooses to reveal himself through a people who had no homeland, the Israelites, a people who constantly forget who God is while worshiping idols and falling short, a people who are repeatedly overthrown and whose land is conquered and taken over by different nations and different tribes, a people who are despised for their belief in only one God, a people who for a long time had no king, a people who fought amongst themselves, a people who are lowly, subjected to rule, from kingdoms that didn't believe in God, a people whose worship was repressed by others. God shows up in that story and continually draws people out and equips them to do incredible things. Our God is the God of the underdog. Our God chooses the weak to humble the proud and chooses the meek to silence the oppressive and the abusive. Our God is the God of equipping those without fame, without fortune, without pride, without anything special, with a spiritual grace that helps them to change the world. As I mentioned earlier, Mary's story hits a climax as she watches her son die on a cross. He dies for a world that doesn't recognize him. And I imagine as a mother, that was probably the most heartbreaking experience of her whole life. 
And I imagine that in those moments, she reflected on the time where she was visited by that angel and told that she would be highly favored, even though her son was being murdered like a criminal. And I imagine she didn't think that this is how she was expecting the story to end. And the great news is we know that that's not the end of the story. We know that Jesus was resurrected. And we also know that the last time we get to see Mary, she is with the disciples in the upper room. And Jesus comes to visit them. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Scripture says this for us. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And that's the last time we get to see Mary's name mentioned in Scripture. But she was integral in the birth of, the raising of, and the ministry of Jesus, even after he ascended into heaven. This woman of no consequence was chosen by God to do one of the most incredible things the world has ever seen, to bear and raise the Son of God. And again, the great news is that God wants to do the same for us. I don't mean that he wants us to bear the Son of God. I mean that God wants to take our faults and our flaws, our issues, our problems, our humanity, and God wants to use us to do great things. The stories that we've talked about over the last few weeks, a prostitute, a liar, this woman who is of no importance, really, God uses these people to do incredible things. And the promise of our scripture is that God wants to do that for us today too. If we'll allow him to use us. God chooses nobodies to do the extraordinary. My hope and my prayer is that God uses each of us to do something beneficial for the kingdom of God right here and right now. So my prayer for each of us this week is that we will allow God to work in us in such a way that we will change the world Because we've seen it happen. That we will allow God to move in us in such a way that we recognize injustice and oppression and the hurt of our world so that we can intercede into situations where we can make a difference. May each of us this week and always be the extraordinary nobodies that God has called us to be so that we can show the world who He is through the way that we live and the way that we love. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com, or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.